Welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 22. If you haven't already, make sure you check out our bigesports.gg forward slash education platform. We're currently taking pre-registrations for our upcoming mentoring course, which is taken a bit of a progression previously it was all online and me in person presenting which isn't scalable and isn't easy for the listeners all over the world to get in touch with so now we've turned into an online on-demand format where you can get access to all of the course curriculum all of the notes some extra worksheets as well as a private q a group where you can connect with myself our other big esports staff and fellow people taking on the course in this episode number 22, we've got Anne Matthews, one of the founders of Fnatic, one of the largest esports teams and properties in the world, and also mother of co-founder Sam Matthews. In this episode, we talk a lot about where esports was at, where it is today. We talk about trends throughout the time, what things haven't worked over their experience over the years. We talk about the importance of aligning yourself with publishers, with sponsors, the difference between creating your own products, relying on sponsors to create it, and various expansion plans. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure that you check out the show notes at bigesports.gg forward slash 22 if you would like a list of the questions and any relevant links. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite, or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discount on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school boot camp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you, not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel, but what their struggles are, how their businesses work and how the back end works. So if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene, make sure you check out PLE at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain. Welcome to the Big Esports Podcast, Anne. Happy to have you here. Nice to be here. Thank you, Chris. No problem at all. I guess we should start this conversation off as we do with pretty much every other podcast. Could you give us a quick introduction to yourself and um, what you've done in the esports industry and how you got from the beginning to where you are now? Uh, it all began with my son, Sam, who is still in Fanatic running running it in London in 2004. He was a gamer himself playing, I think, Quake. And he had teams in Holland that he was starting to want to manage. And he said to me, Mum, would you come and help me do this? Would you run the finances of it? And would you put some money in? <laughs> Which has also helped. So basically what happened is I started working with Sam. I would be here in Australia. He'd be in London. We'd be working on Skype all the time. Uh, we developed teams together and it just grew and grew like that. And I became the finance person and basically the, the full-time manager while well, he came up with the ideas because he was at uni at that point as well. So that's how it became. So Sam and I are the founders of Fnatic and that was 2004. And in 2015, it, or the end, we decided that um, 
I could not be working from Australia as well and running things. It just didn't work. So Sam gave up his other job and came back into Fanatic full time where he is now. And I stepped aside and I'm having a lovely life traveling. Yeah. But still keep in contact with Fanatic and push my ideas out there, even if I am annoying. <laughs> Fantastic. So obviously that's that's quite an extensive history for yourself in the esports space, especially as time is concerned. And I guess we'll, we'll definitely want to touch on some of those topics later about trends and how things have come up and down. But starting, I guess, straight from the start of Fnatic, how do you go about developing an esports brand from the ground up? Obviously, you, you mentioned that you already had a bit of a kickstart where Sam was playing and wanting to manage some other teams. So what's the what's the step-by-step process from turning it into a hobby to a career or a business? Well, obviously, setting up it as a business, um, you know, bank accounts and all that sort of stuff that you've been in before, but then getting some money and then you must have the teams. Without a good team, you can't get anywhere because you don't get recognised, you don't get invited to events. So really we had two good, really good teams. They were Dutch actually, Quake Quake 4 and um, I forgot the name of the other game. Oof. Anyway, it was way back in 2004. So they were good teams and we managed to get them into competitions they got a bit known and we also had to do a lot of PR stuff to get known. Mm. That was the time when CPL came along, which you may have heard of. I don't know if you know CPL. We were lucky enough then that this was sort of when esports was really, people starting to notice it a bit. So we had to get teams sent to America. So we had to dig in our pockets for those sorts of things. Um, so that's what's hard about beginning in any any of these esports businesses, especially back then when you got no support, you got no travel money, you got nothing. But nowadays, most most publishers will pay for people to travel to events. So I think the main thing is for anyone that wants to get into it is think of the costs because obviously there's no point doing it if you can't afford to give a positive cash flow for at least six months. Then you need to get some team, a good team that will compete well in the big games like League of Legends or Counter-Strike, they're the, they're, they're the most exposed ones at the moment. I mean, Fortnite, you can have a player, but it's it's an individual player. So I think starting an esports team now is a very difficult thing. You need quite a lot of money. You need to be able to spend on travel. So you've got to start with a good cash flow, good capital to begin with. Uh, do you want me to explain any more or you can ask me questions yeah for sure i think it's interesting you know this is obviously this is episode 22 for those who are listening and and back in episode 21 i had very similar sentiments come from um, nathan model rippy who's the founder of diables a very successful team in its own right here in australia and he mentioned similar he mentioned a similar thing to you backed up by me and and i asked him you know if you were to give any experience any of words of wisdom to someone looking to start a team today, what, what would it be? And his simple words were, don't. Um, <laughs> and my addition to that was exactly like you were saying as well, which is yeah, you need to, you need to have some foundation and some base of capital yeah. to be able to play. It's not, it's not of the time anymore where you can just be a decent player and then start a team, which is exactly what he did and exactly what Sam did as yeah. well. But of course we have, we have now had 14, 15 years behind us. So we've, we, we started with our own money, obviously in debt, and eventually we made positive, which is, I think, a damn good thing in esports. It's not many. Mm. I can be very proud of that 2015, we hadn't borrowed any money at that point, and we were making positive money. Now things have changed. Now the investment in esports is millions and millions of dollars, and you cannot exist in esports without 
raising lots of money because the competition, the licenses, the, the franchises, you know, you're paying eight million, round about eight million for riot franchises, things like that. So it's it's not a baby sport anymore. It's not just a hobby. That's the thing. That's how it's changed so much. It's cheaper in Australia because it's not big so big here yet. But it will catch up and they'll still need the big money. That's that's the problem. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, Fnatic, I want to kind of pinpoint a bit on Fnatic gear and, and different business models. So it's obvious that Fnatic has some slightly different business models to other teams. I would say it's probably more of a diversif- a diversification of income streams. So I wanted to pick your brain a bit and learn a bit more about, um, yeah, what the thinking is for Fnatic going through that. And, and was that a conscious decision to get away from a sponsorship-only model? And how has it worked out for you? Uh, well, you know, for the many years... You try to make money to cover all your costs. Yes, sponsorship was important, but gradually one realised you had to um, monetize things. You can't just be dependent on sponsors. So, of course, one of the first things we really did was develop our own shop, our own clothing, and that was way back in 2008, but we, we've really, really grown that. And so mm. the better you become as a team, the more you can market your own clothes, your own designs. That has become a very big thing and, and much more positive than we ever would have thought. Also because uh, we've got people that are very passionate, especially Sam, about design. So that has helped us. Sponsorship's still big, but the, the shop is still huge. Doing marketing activations to rate to get money, you get some money from streaming. But of course we also diversified, as you know, into Fanatic gear. Now, as you also know, that's a bit of a it's a it's a risk because of the competition. You work for Corsair and all those people. But because Sam is so passionate about making products that are for gamers, that fit gamers, work the best for gamers, he wanted to do it, not just to compete with these other people, because he was so passionate about design. So we, we've, we've got this mixture in, in our, I was the finance and the business person, Sam was the love design and so we've now incorporated all that together the passion trying to raise money by making products for gamers and i know that's a cliche they all say that but we're really trying to do that quality Mm. good affordable products for gamers so we make you can make money by sponsorship by your shop your clothing doing marketing activation with people uh, eventually we'll all make more money through broadcasting rights. And to me, that's what we're missing at the moment. Mm. All the rugby football teams, they earn a percentage of broadcasting. We don't at the moment, and that's probably wrong, and that hopefully will change. And that leads into another question later that I'll say a bit more about. Mm. And what I want to ask you is what's the tipping point here of relying on a sponsor to pay you money and, and for you to push their gear versus owning your own gear. So, you know, what would it, what would it take for Fnatic to not have Fnatic gear and to rely on Corsair or SteelSeries or Razer or possibly, you know, Adidas or Nike coming in and saying, you know, hey, stop making your own products, we'll do a line with you. What's the, what's the tipping point for you deciding to go off your own path? Well, of course, we were sponsored by um, SteelSeries and you know, we'd work with them for a long time and we were happy to do that. But they all, this is what happens with a lot of sponsors, they get 
tighter and tighter with their money. So as you're growing, they don't grow with you. And that's where it goes all wrong. We, you know, we may have stayed with people like Steel Seeds if they'd allowed us to grow with them, help them make better designs. Mm. So the tipping point comes where they don't reach the point where they're giving you enough money to make it worthwhile. They forget that you've grown. So, you know, they started probably with a small sponsorship and haven't been prepared to go up to your value. So, of course, at that point you think, well, how about we look at, we want to make our own products. Yes, we're turning down money. But on the other hand, if we make the products correctly ourselves and how we want them, then eventually we will be better off. But it is a, it is a difficult one. It takes a few years. You, do you understand what I'm saying there? Mm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think I, I wanted to touch a little bit on Fanatics branding. You know, it's a it's a company that I've been following for many, many years. I think for me, as with many, was introduced to it through Counter-Strike 1.6, mm. especially in the era when Fnatic were winning everything with the Swedish team, with, with Khan or Patrick leading the realm, who's made a successful transition as well from the esports player life to the business life. Yeah. How, how does Fnatic target um, certain sections within the market, being such a global brand? Do you have a specific marketing campaign to target, say, fans in North America versus fans in London or Australia? Or do you um, just pick up teams that you think are the best? Is there a direct strategy around this? Well, we what we look for is the best teams. It's not just regions. So, for instance, that's why we picked up Rainbow Six over here. Mm. It was a world-class team. It's Australian. We were, we were really happy to be able to do that. But it had to be world-class. Um, in Because we are in the League of Legends Europe, we have to pick up the best players in Europe. We, we're restricted. We can't do that in America. We've, got, we've picked up a Dota team that are all based in Malaysia. So it's not totally localised, and we would like to have it all over the world. Mm. But America would be a big market, which one would like to have more teams in. But again, you need to set up offices there. You need to have recruiters. And in the big games like League of Legends, uh, you're restricted to one license. So, you know, we we are very much in Europe, but like to be thought of as worldwide. Mm. No, that definitely makes sense. So from so from my understanding from that question, you're really teams and performance first. Is that what Fnatic mainly focuses on? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And then the marketing follows suit, I assume, after that. Yes, that's right. I mean, we try and market worldwide, really. But yes, we, we want quality, quality, not good teams. That's right. Mm, and that definitely does, actually, on a previous topic you were mentioning before, I remember the Fnatic onesie that came out many years oh, ago. Oh, yes. That was funny, wasn't it? Going back to the design. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully that was Sam's idea, <laughs> pushing forward. No, so, was idea. <laughs> oh, your idea. There you go. Yes. Go on, So. Sorry. That's okay. So being being based, you know, all around the world for so long, that obviously means that you'd have quite a significant insight into market trends. You're able to have, you know, boots on the ground in Australia now, Malaysia. You identified various regions of Europe and North America as well. So what I want to ask you is instead of, you know, putting an analyst hat on and picking what trends you think are coming out in the future, I'd like to ask you about where esports was when you were starting in, in 2004 up to, say, 2008 and where it is today. What trends were commonly known and predicted that didn't eventuate, that didn't become true? I suppose the trends are, are more the games, isn't it? It's, it's, what, what you learn over the years is that you have to end up backing the publishers because without the publishers promoting their games the games don't last mm. so you do you do learn that like when, when league of legend okay counter-strike valve that's been around for many many years and that's just a game that survives through anything i mean it's not pushed by valve at all so that's a different category altogether but then you have 
League of Legends, when that first started, I think it was about 2006, we were in at Seabit, and no one was taking any notice of this game. It was just StarCraft and Counter-Strike playing. And I, I said, I reckon we should be going into this game. It looks like it's going to have big following. And you have to be looking what's coming up. I mean, that's what Patrick does now. But by picking the right game, the right publisher, and following them, it's really crucial. For instance, another game was Hom. Heroes of the Storm, I think, knew it. I think you had something to do with it. That was a mm. great game, great following, but they made an enormous mistake. They didn't make it free online like League of Legends, and it killed it. It's just so simple as something like that. And then you have so the companies that were trending back then, CPL. Do you ever hear of CPL? Yes, yep. They were, their idea was fantastic. You know, they had these great tournaments in America. They travelled around the world. I think... It, we went all over the world with CPL, and I've never seen such events, you know, spectacular events, but they ran out of money. They Obviously, the business planning wasn't correct, but they were ahead of their time. Then we had CGS. Do you remember CGS? Yes. The, yep. that, was, that was backed by Fox, I think, who back then put in $5 million and said, we must get esports up. Their idea was great, except they ruined it by making it into a glitzy, showy sort of non-esports event in America, and and nearly and nearly killed Counter Strike in the US, didn't they? Mm. You know, so that failed dreadfully, and people didn't listen. They didn't understand that gamers want a different form. They don't want dancing girls with bomb bombs and all that. So that failed. Yes. Um, and now I think that the trend is just you've got to. You've got to stick to good games and good publishers, as I said. So you, we've got League of Legends. We've got Counter-Strike, which is always, I think, going to be around there. So now we've got Rainbow Six, which is not so popular in Australia, unfortunately, but it's still backed really well by Ubisoft. But then we've got Fortnite, as everyone knows, has taken over the world in the sense of number of players. Mm. It's hard to describe it as a East. I mean, it's eSports, but it's not competitive like we're thinking. Is it like League of Legends or Counter-Strike? I don't know what you think of that, but it's no doubt made a big dent in a lot of companies like Blizzard have been affected, EA Games have been affected by Fortnite. So you've got to watch all of these trends because the publishers surviving is what make the games survive. Mm -hmm. So I haven't, I haven't mentioned Overwatch because, again, that started as a wonderful game two years ago where we had this fantastic team with a lot of Australians in it, would you believe, based in London. And then Blizzard decided to franchise it. Well, let's watch the space, shall we? What happens with it? <laughs> that was me, be my only comment there. I don't want to say any more than that. Mm. Um, okay. I think there's a few interesting points definitely to pull out from what you were saying there. And, and one thing that I'm glad you brought up that I haven't thought about in a while is Heroes of New Earth versus League of Legends. And I think we're finding a very similar thing between Player Unknown's Battlegrounds and with Fortnite right now, as we did with Hon and, and League of Legends, with you know a lot of similarities in the fact that sure they're different game types, you know, shooters versus MOBAs, but um Player Unknown Battlegrounds being like um Heroes of New Earth where it has some inherent bugs within the game. The developer the developer support is arguably not as strong as it could be. Maybe there's some mistakes made. And also it's a it's a paid game to play uh, compared to, you know, a free-from-the-beginning model like League of Legends is compared to Fortnite. And definitely some interesting discussion um, to come out of what you were saying as well about Fortnite not being 
I guess what you would say a pure esport. It's very different in the way that it functions and mm. the way that they use content creators instead of esports teams, but are still calling it esports is very interesting. And I think mm. a lot of the time, to me, you know, when people come to me and say, "Hey, Chris, it's not a real esport. What do you think?" I kind of say, "Well, it's it's so big that you just." It's impossible to ignore, and it's similar to where League of Legends was years ago with Dota, where some of the Dota 2 purists are saying, oh, League of Legends is too easy, you can't deny in the game, the mechanics aren't as hard, etc., etc. And I say, that's all well and good, but look at the player numbers of League of Legends versus Dota exactly. 2. Look how, yeah. can, look how supported the competitive scene is. And, you know, when you look at the competitive models of League, exactly like you were saying, fantastic developer support, and they really have, especially in a smaller region, like Australia, where we are right now, League can be um, kind of granted the, the fact that, that they've really grown and established the scene here in Australia. They forced the teams to professionalise, to pay wages, to get team houses, to play out of studios, and that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't supported that support. Yeah, it's just great. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It, you're right. It's it, As you can see through all this conversation, it all comes back, I think, esports is a great expanding rapidly but it, we need the publishers to support them and that's what makes the game you know you're right with that PUBG mm. it's pub I guess you call it. it it's not doing half as well as it was because of Fortnite um, Fortnite is something we can't ignore and I think what's happening is we, we teams like Fnatic have individual Fortnite players who do get together and do weekly events it, but it's different to what, mm. as you say, pure esports, isn't it? But it's still entertainment, and you know we've got to make sure we understand that it is entertainment esports, basically. Yeah, correct, exactly. So I wanted to touch, I guess, a bit more on the valuation, investment, and business side of things. So you mentioned before that 2015 there was a bit of change with Fnatic, with Sam coming back in full time, yourself stepping back and and going to a bit more of a capital raise model. Um, so. Talking about not necessarily just Fnatic, but valuations in esports as a whole. How do you see the valuations of esports? Do you think they're realistic, and and are they able to be upheld over time? Because we're often seeing, um, you know, valuations in Silicon Valley can be anywhere from three to ten x of the company's revenue can be the valuation, but in esports it can be blown quite out of proportion. So why is that? <laughs> it's a very difficult question to answer that one. Um, mm. I do think that the US teams have particularly high valuations. How they manage to uphold that, I do not know, because I thought us as a team that's been around for 2004, our valuation is based on longevity, what we bring in. But how those teams value, I don't know. They look very high to me. Um, but I And that people are willing to put money in on those valuations because everyone sees the potential. I believe that some places are more big. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, some people, some teams will overvalue, but I think the ones that have been around a long time are sensible. The values are correct and they will keep going up. That's as long as we keep thinking esports is going to keep growing and growing and become more the entertainment rather than, you know, live stream football, cricket, all that, which the figures are pointing to. So, yes, we have that potential if you compare us to these these, well, let's say football teams, their valuations are way, way more than ours. And yet we could get up to those sort of figures in um, entertainment and viewerships. Mm. 
So do you think that the scalability of, of eSports right now is, is on track to meet those kind of targets? Like there's a there's been an article that came out late last year, for example, of Forbes valuing the top 10 eSports teams, yeah. talking about how only one team is cash flow positive, et cetera, and, and teams raising it quite large valuations. You know, number 10, I think, off the top of my head, was sitting at 50 mil, where number one was sitting at 310 mil, who were both competing in similar tournaments. So obviously there's a massive difference in valuation. There's teams that are spending a lot of money on just salary of players alone, one to 500k for, for star players. Do you think that the money is still going to keep flowing in in time or are we going to see a bit of a pullback in the market? I think the money is still flowing in. There's still a lot of people wanted to get into invest in esports. I do believe that the chart you're talking about, which I saw, some of the top teams I felt were way overvalued, but they must have based it on something. They've got to have proper accountants and things doing all this. It's not just picking numbers out of the sky. Mm. Um, and there could have been maybe a bit more realistic valuation. I think American companies are always overvalued. You know, they they are quite happy to put these huge, huge figures on. But I do believe other teams, and, and I'm sorry, I'm talking about us, we've tried to be realistic um, in our figures. And we do believe we've got a huge growth potential. But not every team has. We feel that our game, Fanatic Gear side, gives us that potential. Um, the only other way other teams are going to grow is to grow their shops, their revenue through through clothing, bigger sponsorship, and I think, as I repeated before, broadcasting rights. If they come in, our valuations will go up even more. Mm. So, the, I mean, the common sentiment from the public as well is the fact that sponsorship from non-endemics isn't coming in at a pace that some people would have thought. You've obviously mentioned uh, broadcast deals for a while. Do you think that, that broadcast deals are going to be the main saving grace that will save these esports teams from, you know, a cash flow negative future? That'll help, but I do think there's still huge potential in um, in bigger sponsors, more more endemic sponsors that when they're not quite there yet, but but they're coming. I mean, the money that they put into some of the football teams and all that, that, that will come. And, and you're right, it was slower to get the increase in sponsorship than we all thought. We thought, but it's changing. All of a sudden, it's, I've noticed it's changing. We're getting much bigger people, and that's what will happen. And also franchising such as League of Legends, the idea is that we, teams will have more stable long-term income from these franchises so that that's going to help broadcasting is definitely one of the ways and using us as marketeers and, and showing off your products i do think that that's going to get bigger and bigger you compare us to you know football what's that game in australia they just had now the big um what do we call it gridiron another name they have hundreds of thousands of money given just for one event so yes there is big potential. Mm, yeah, and I, I find it interesting talking, um, you know, we have a bit of back and forward recently about sponsorship being slow, and I find that it seems to be coming in batches, right? Like mm. automotive is the latest batch to come into esports, and I've been trying to do some thinking about, you know, who's going to be the next batch, and it's so hard to pick because you don't know when, what stage internal discussions are at, when the trigger is going to be pulled on this sponsorship. But if you take automotive, for example, it only took us about three or four years to see, you know, Audi, then Subaru, Mercedes, and now Honda, Toyota, BMW, etc., all come into the space at once. So, do you think there's a there's a trend that you can pick for, you know, what the next batch of sponsors is going to be? If not, what do you think is a is a perfect fit for the market that isn't currently in here right now? 
Well, I think that there's a huge chance for food companies like Kellogg's and all those sort of people to get in there far, far bigger. They're just not in there, and, and they could hugely be the snack foods, all that sort of stuff. More, more. Um, I know there's a lot of drinks like Monster there in there, but there's also a chance for other healthier drinks, Pepsi, Coca-Cola. They've not come in there really. Credit cards, I know they've done little little touches with MasterCard. They, they're huge. Mm. They can all come in there in a big way i mean we've taken on a telephone sponsor that's a new trend they're getting more and more into seeing that esports i think any product that young people between 18 and 35 40 can use we're we're the potential esport we're the brands that can market to these people it's just these companies are not trusting enough yet or not understood what esports is there's so many people that don't know what that you mean when you say esports aren't they mm. and they they'll, they'll get there but you're right it's it's slowly teaching them i think every year that we we grow and we show them what it's all about the more people will come in i think music sponsors like deezer and all that they, they're coming into it more and clothing clothing companies could definitely be in there and shoes where's nike and all them you know there's massive potential mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And and it's interesting that you talked about, the, I guess, the educational process of getting these brands. And some of the issues that I explained to people outside of esports is that we spent the past 10 years educating endemic brands on what esports mm. is, which is kind of a, it's a weird thing in its own right, because by being endemic, they should probably know what it is, but for whatever reasons, they don't. And now we've finally got that. And what I find is that they're they're all their marketing budgets are done. They're spending the max amount of money that they can until their markets grow and those companies can grow larger. So there's no point consistently pitching to those kind of people for more money or for more sponsorship for more teams. So now it's up to the non-endemics. And now we're going through that whole educational process again and it's even harder to explain to them because they seriously don't understand that market and they don't have any products that are a quote-unquote natural fit you know, you don't necessarily think of a, of a Kellogg's, you know, breakfast bar as being an esports thing compared to obviously a mouse or a keyboard. There's there's much stronger of a tie. So sometimes it can be hard to get through to them. Do you agree? Oh, I fully agree, Chris. I think that that's, that's the crazy thing. Of course, we can't keep pitching to the endemic that you, they've reached their budget. But mm. gosh, people like Kellogg's with a breakfast bar they, or, or a nice healthy food company. Think of the Counter-Strike players that can sit there and play for hours at a time. They need food. They need not energy so much because, uh, you know, healthy food, healthy drink, all of that could be marketed. Think of airlines. The, the amount of travel that our players do, the Counter-Strike, enormous. Mm. Why can't why can't airlines sponsor them like they do other teams? Like Emirates, who sponsors huge amount of sports teams, but not esports. There's enormous potential, and we need to get outside the box. We need to get away from all the all the endemic because they have a limited budget. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, a lot of my advice from smaller esports teams that I feel you'd agree with as well is they come to me and say, hey, can you help me get sponsored by Razor or Corsair, et cetera? And it's, mm-hmm. it's the same thing and say, look, everybody else is trying to get sponsored by the same people. And if you look at the budgets they have, your local council, municipality, likely has a larger budget than the global influencer budget for an, for an endemic company. You know, I know a few ex-mayors, et cetera, and, and their budget you know, sands, roads and infrastructure just for marketing of their region is so big. So why don't you go and create a localized product and talk to your local mechanic and, you know, local cafe. If you can prove to them the concept that you're broadcasting yourself to local fans and not rely on esports is going to be a billion dollar industry by 2020, like everyone talks about, um, you can actually have something, 
yeah proper proper to put forward to them and a, and a good marketing plan to go ahead with that that's an excellent idea and one of the things that came out of an, that conference that was here in sydney in um in november was a lot of um, big sports stadiums came to the conference to learn about esports so these people want to work with esports to have events and if you could work with the local council and the local stadiums you could create you know regular little events there and all the local companies could be sponsors for it. Mm. I think that's a brilliant way of doing it because in Australia it's quite hard to get big, big events. So if you can encourage people locally to support teams that are local, now you can grow from there and then you get better teams because they're competing more, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a trend that I'm seeing a lot in esports right now is is live events, live venues and localization of product. Not only just the franchise model saying, you know, here's a Shanghai team or a Sydney team, even back to the championship gaming series, same thing, you know, a London team, an LA team, a Sydney, Australia team, etc. But really localizing events and capturing an audience because if you can get them to a live venue, not only can you broadcast your sponsors to them as you would if they looked at your page on on Facebook, but also you can sell them food and drinks. Um, you can sell them an experience, meetups with players. There's so much more. Once you've got, I guess I think in stadiums they call it a captured market or a yeah, captured audience, yeah. right? Once they're there, they, they need to eat and drink at least, if nothing else. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you've got now we've got companies in Australia. I'm just talking about Australia at the moment, like ESL, who are available to run all these little events. It's good to work with these people and the stadiums. And and you're right, they can come and have little cafes. Kids can come and play Fortnite. At the Australian Open, I was there and uh, they had Fortnite booths and there was kids queuing up all the time. Mm. So things like that are happening. But again, it's you people need money and support here. Exactly. So maintaining the um, relationship in regards to sponsors as well as investors, the common question that people like yourself must get asked all the time is how to get a sponsorship. And that becomes quite old. What I want to ask you is how do you maintain an investor and sponsor relations over an extended period of time? Do you have any any tips? I think the, the crucial thing for me working with a sponsor is working extremely closely with their, their team, that their marketing team that you should be dealing with. You should be on a weekly basis talking to them. You should be coming up with marketing ideas, exposure ideas with them. And if you're small, you can actually grow with this company. You know, one of our primary stuffs, we used to do a lot with MSI, the computer people, not that we do anymore. But for a long time, we grew with them. We would go to their events, we would help them, they would help us. Same with AMD now. You've got to learn to grow, but you have to work with them. You know, you just don't want money. You've got to come up with ideas. You've got to be proactive doing things for them because that's the whole idea they're sponsoring you. They can market their products, and that's what we need to learn to do. Teaching your teams how to do media, how to expose the sponsors is absolutely crucial. And it's still something that I think all esports need to teach their teams better, their players, you know, better, better promotion of the people you're working with. And then they see the rewards the sponsors. Mm, so taking the taking the topic, I guess, to something a little bit more Australian based, which is where I'm based and, and obviously where Fnatic has a lot of its roots in, there's some discussion from Sam Matthews, um, you know, director and founder last year of some more Australian expansion for Fnatic. Are you able to expand on any of those possibilities? We've, uh, he and I have had a few chats about this. At the moment, we've got the Rainbow Six team, which is very, very good. And it's actually in London at the moment, would you believe, training in our head office but the potential here for us in Australia is quite limited we can't take on a League of Legends because 
you're only allowed one license. Um, we could have a FIFA team that would be probably have to be in conjunction with a, a football team because to me that makes sense because you're going to have it related to the team. The only other thing I learned from that meeting was maybe an Overwatch challenger, but it's very difficult. I can't see how we can expand here because we want a top team and that Rainbow Six was a top team, but there aren't really any others available at the moment, are there? Mm. Unless you have some suggestions, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we can maybe we can build one together, or I can I can make my return to, to Counter Strike Global Offensive as a player. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no worries. We'll build the dream. But you can you can see how it's difficult for a big team mm. to come into the Australian market because it is a very small Australian and New Zealand market. It is a small market, and the teams haven't had a chance to become world class world, worldwide uh, champions have they yeah exactly and i did talk about this a little bit in in um episode 21 um talking about the underdevelopment of the australian market with the diables who that's what they're purely focused on they have the esports high performance center which is at the sydney cricket ground and they've been you know winning they won the last four oceanic pro league league of legends splits in a row they're one of the I could say probably fairly confidently they're the only team that has a significant investment into high performance right. in regards to working with PhD students and their players across multiple properties owned by Guinevere Capital, across the Direwolves, across the Drop Bears. Overwatch team who've been cannibalised in a good way by the um, Overwatch World League squad mm-hmm. have really been pushing players off into the rest of the world and, and with their female CSGO teams and otherwise. But no, you're exactly right. And it's an interesting model and there's a lot of international interest in localized esports, I find, from around the world. You know, US teams trying to expand into uh, Asia Pacific or APJ. Um, you see a lot of that with Asian teams that are looking to expand into Australia, whether it be teams or companies otherwise. And, you know, VC money going left, right, back and center. But yeah, definitely, it's an interesting thinking exercise for me, like you were saying, is how exactly does one of these global teams? Um, advance into another market and for me I don't really have the exact answer the only other mm. example I could see besides obviously you um, taking over a team that is already world class is something like Optic Gaming when they've been opening up almost their silos so they've have an Optic Gaming in India um, and I believe they have an Optic Gaming streaming squad in Southeast Asia as well who are almost like uh, business units or divisions of their company. I, I think yeah there's all these potentials. The problem is as a company we need to make sure that our our base, European base, is solid and growing. And at the moment we're putting all our investment into the European market. Mm. Um, we would like to expand here, but you know you can't do it everywhere and you and we want to do it really well. So that's at the moment why we we're just doing it with Rainbow Six, but we always have our eyes open. Mm. Fantastic. So, what's what's next for Fnatic? Looking into the next next twelve to eighteen months, where do you where do you pick the trends and and where's the expansion mainly going to be? The expansion is basically well, we've now started in the League of Legends um, franchise. Unfortunately, we're not doing very well at the moment, but uh, things will pick up. Counter Strike is the same. Always a good world class competition. Um, Fortnite, we've got a few few teams. We've got a few other teams and things. We've got bits. Teams like Dota 2 is doing very well. There's no real changes this year in terms of games. We're just hoping to expand our fanatic gear and our clothing. We've got a, this is a bit of a, an advertising push, a fantastic new headset coming out in July, June, July, which has taken years to make just for gamers. So I hope this is going to be one of our new things this year that will put us on the stage. Um, 
Otherwise, we're just sorting out the office in London, bringing in better, more and more better people, getting more efficient, working with our, our sponsors more. You know, have you ever been to London? You ought to go and visit the office there. I haven't. Uh, no, it sounds uh, like a must-do trip. Yeah, you should do that. Um, just growing, just making sure we keep growing, being more efficient. Do I think podcast is another big area we're probably going to get into like, like you are because it seems to be a growing trend, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to touch quickly, um, and this is kind of off the beaten path with our show notes, but I want to touch quickly on the business side of things for you guys as well, especially in regards to hiring staff and the process of that. Yeah. I mean, it's a common thing that a lot of listeners of this podcast are looking to start their own team, which we've talked about mainly, but a majority of them are looking to work for an established esports company. So you've obviously had a good transition from someone like Patrick Sadat and your chief gaming officer who's come across from being a Counter-Strike captain over to the business side. Do you find that within Fnatic, you're looking for people who have that grassroots core esports history in the past? Do you find that now that you're of scale, you're looking for people with degrees, MBAs, et cetera, to carry on the flag? Or is it a combination of the both? Is there no best formula? Well, I can say at the moment we've had to employ our own internal um, recruiter. So we've, we've, it's, we've got that big that we now don't go outside. So his full-time job is recruiting people. And we are looking, you're right, for people that have had good experience, top finance people. We're trying to get in-house lawyer. This is how big it's become. Mm. So we're not talking about little salaries anymore. We're having to pay the full London, London salary. So, no, we are looking for high-class experienced people and not necessarily with esports um background but on the if you split the company into the team side the esports side and then all the other marketing sales side we do look for good people in the team side with experience obviously if you want someone to manage teams we need someone that understands esports don't we so that's a slightly different different side of it but you know on the esports side we have to get we want Managers that have got experience, man- managers that, that know how to play sport. It's not necessarily just esports. Managers that understand psychology. You know, it's not like a little person you used to employ years ago for nothing and then they grow into the position. We just can't afford that. You have to have people that are highly experienced. And yes, mostly they've got degrees. Mm. Yeah, and tying in with the growing of, of, you know, staff is obviously growing with the company. And these are some questions that I covered a lot in a previous podcast with, with Jerry Sackas, who's the CEO of, of one of our investors here at Big. But scaling up yourself from being, you know, kind of a one-man band in 2004 to where you are today in, in a significant esports position globally. When, when have you decided to scale? Is there a particular tipping point that says, okay, we need to go to the next step and hire these staff, get these teams and get investors? Do you find a natural progression or has it been uh, up and down depending on where you are in the market or what you're feeling like? It's never gone down. We've gradually got more and more people working with us. Probably would say 2012 is when it all started to really escalate, realising that we couldn't handle it all, all ourselves. You know, we, we had about eight managers then and and some people working in Serbia for us. But from then on, we realised we needed a proper office, we needed proper this, we needed proper that. And as once we did that, we grew, we just realised you just have to scale because you do more stuff, you're producing more more marketing, you're producing more clothing. So gradually now it's got to the point where there's, a, I think there's about 30 to 40 staff in the London office and we have about 15 in the Serbian office. So 
we've just you just keep growing. And we're, uh, you know, talking to Sam the other day, we're recruiting so many more people just to become better and more efficient. Also, as you become a bigger company, you've got more corporate governance to, to, to fulfil. So, you know, you can't act like a little company anymore. Everything has to be, you know, proper accounts, proper everything, proper predicting, proper, you know, all that. So we're not obviously listed, but we still have to behave and show everything correctly. Mm. So for anybody listening to this podcast up until this point and would like to look at the questions we've asked or, or any links to, to Fanatic and Anne, you can make sure you head to bigesports.gg forward slash 22, which will take you directly to the episode, and that's two to the numbers. But, Anne, if anyone's looking to connect with you, follow yourself or your company, where can they do so online? They can go LinkedIn. You'll find Sam Matthews, Anne Matthews, all on LinkedIn. There's a, a website which is we haven't developed enough because websites are not so important anymore. So just follow fanatic.com. Fantastic. And are there any any parting words of wisdom you'd like to give anyone who's looking to start their esports journey as a you know ten to fifteen year esports veteran yourself? It's hard work. You've got to be passionate about it. Um, I don't think it's a particularly good time to start, but if you can get a good backer and you can get a fantastic team, go ahead. It's worth a try because it's very fascinating business. All right, fantastic. Thanks for joining us today, Anne, and uh, be sure to keep in touch. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of Season 1 and Season 2 has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.